Please pray with me. Lord, I pray that my speech and my message will not be in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that our faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Good morning, church. It is really great to be with you, and I'm very thankful for this time that I've had this weekend. I do bring you greetings from my wife, Sally, and as Kevin has already said, she, uh, a week ago tomorrow, had um, eye surgery to repair a detached retina, and she just wasn't ready to travel, so it kind of came up upon us quickly, and uh, she misses being here, and I miss her being here, too. Um, I haven't been here since... Kevin was installed as the pastor of the church. I think last year, Bishop Quigg, who's the assisting bishop of our diocese, made the parish visit. So you guys turned everything around. <laughs> you changed the whole place up. And it looks fantastic. It really has been wonderful to be here. I'm very encouraged. Um, just in a short sentence or two, as I've been here this weekend, it's been clear to me that Church of the Lamb is being very well planted. It's a very strong sense that I have of just being among you that God is planting this church here and, and, and that you desire and he desires for this church to grow and to bear fruit and to bless this community. And already you as a church are being called to face into stiff wind, which is tough to do. And a lot of times people flinch from that. And one of the encouraging things for me to see is how this church under the leadership of Kevin um, is facing a stiff wind well with peace and with confidence in the Lord. I am deeply encouraged by Kevin and Katie. It really has been wonderful to be with them. You guys got a great pastor. And um, this couple is wise and compassionate beyond their years. Uh, I see in them a genuine commitment to your well-being, that they are here to serve. And I just have great hopes and confidence as I look to the future of the Church of the Lamb here in Elkton in this valley. Praise God. Hallelujah. Amen. Can I hear an amen? amen? I know this is Anglican. Come on, loosen up. I want to do something this morning a little bit unusual for me, a preacher, and that is that I'm going to preach an unfinished sermon. I'm going to leave a lot unsaid, which you will be glad because I'm going to say plenty, okay? But I have much more I could say. In fact, if I were the regular preacher here, this would be the first in a series of about three or four sermons. Uh, but I want to simply introduce a topic to you. It's a critical topic that's on my heart, and I don't have time to complete this project. But what I want you to do is to consider this sermon as an invitation, an open door. I want to paint a picture of what you can be or what God is calling you to that I hope you will go through. And I do hope that I will be able to paint a path for how to go through this door and how to continue on the other side but I can't hold your hand to take you down that path. <laughs> I'm going to have to give you the tools to walk down that path yourself and leave it up to you to make those decisions. And this is what God has stirred me up to say. The subject in the broadest sense is simply Christian discipleship, growth in Christ-likeness. And I do want to encourage you to have ready to open your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 1 or go ahead and open it up there. And if you do take notes, this might be a, a good one to take notes on because as I outline this path for you, I hope it'll be something that you take home and ponder and wrestle with. But in this general topic of Christian discipleship, more specifically, I am going to share with you a call 
to a serious and intentional and practical pursuit of discipleship. And when I use the word discipleship, I could also say godliness. I could say Christ-likeness. A serious, intentional, practical pursuit of a discipled life. And I want to encourage you in that end. I want to give you some hope. I want, to, I want you to be, see this as a hopeful enterprise, so that's part of my agenda today. But I also want to give you an honest appeal because there is a hard side to the appeal. There's a determination and sacrifice inherent in being a disciple of Jesus. Luke chapter 9, Jesus says himself, you must take up your cross daily and follow me. So if you don't experience your discipleship as intentional, practical, self-denial along the way on a daily basis, according to Jesus, then perhaps you might check whether or not you're sincerely following Jesus, at least making it practical and earnest in your life. Because he's the one who says it, right? It's not, these are not my words. Take up your cross daily and follow me. A disciple of, of Jesus, by definition, is swimming upstream. Swimming against the current of the culture, but swimming against the current of our own inclinations and desires. We're pushing in a different direction. We're being called to be something and become something that we are, but that we must also become. And that's one of the messages that you'll hear today. I was at a retreat center this past week, and I wish I could show you this picture. There was a cross in the, uh, in the, in the bookstore, the retreat center. And on the cross, in these lovely little you know, colors and everything, it said this, quote, Trust in your beautiful, holy, light-filled divinity. And I wanted to just put this big, huge sign on that cross that says, not. <laughs> because the call of a discipleship, that doesn't sound like carrying the cross to me. That doesn't sound like what Jesus is saying. I've got to be more honest than that. I've got to be more direct. This is not the explosion of your own divinity. But this is becoming something that God is calling you to be and that God has already made you to be. But in that process, there is this earnestness. There's this demand of fruit bearing. The passages from the Old Testament and the Psalms talk about Israel and its refusal to bear the fruit that God intended it to bear. And therefore, eventually, after hundreds of years of appeal to them, they came under judgment and disciplinary judgment in order that they might be purified to become the fruit-bearing people that God had called them to be. So there isn't an earnestness and a hardness. But having said that, basically, I want to encourage you. I want to give you some hope here. So turn again, if you have it there, to first to Second Peter. And this intentional, practical life of a disciple, according to Peter in this book, begins with four gifts from God. So as we start this conversation about intentional discipleship, I want to begin with reminding you of the gifts you already have. Discipleship, according to Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, begins with the gospel for you. Verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God, our Savior. 
We all stand in the same place as Peter did. Imagine this. Here's the great Saint Peter, the head of the New Testament church, the chief leader of the disciples of Jesus, the apostle who was given particularly the charge to build a church, the guy who Jesus probably spent more time with on earth than any other single individual. And yet he's writing to a group of people, and frankly, we don't even know where they are. It could be anywhere. Some small church somewhere in Asia Minor, some small church in Alexandria, or some small church, a new church in Elkton, Virginia. And he's saying, guys, let me just tell you on the beginning, we're all standing at the same place. We see are standing with the same basic status before God. We have the same belovedness. We have the same forgiveness. We have the same hope. We have the same inheritance. We have the same promises. We have the same future as I do, Peter says. Because everything we have begins with the gift of the righteousness of God to us through Jesus Christ. So we stand at the beginning of this conversation of intentional discipleship completely right with God, completely accepted with God. It's based on what he has done for us and what has already been given to us. To scroll to another book, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, probably my favorite verse in the entire Bible. St. Paul says, he made him who knew no sin to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So there's an exchange at the cross of our sin and our condemnation for the righteousness of God. And it is ours from day one that we accept Jesus. Peter, in his first epistle, says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by the power of God are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. I went through a period of my life when I really struggled with a lot of doubts about my relationship with God. I kept really wondering, you know, was I in or out, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And my wife kept bringing back to me that verse. Steve, she kept saying, you are guarded by the power of God for a salvation ready to be delivered in full to you at the end of times. This is God's promise to us. So this call to discipleship begins with a great confidence that you stand in the righteousness of God. And I want you to receive that word today. I want you to hold on to that. Whatever appeal I make to you comes out of the hope that you are already right with God. Second, this is another gift. Discipleship, according to Peter in 2 Peter, is essentially the unfolding of a relationship. Verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May you grow in the grace of God and grow in the peace of God in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Savior, our Lord. God is inviting us to enter into a growing personal intimacy with him. It's not so much knowledge about him. There will be knowledge about him, but it's the knowledge of him. It's a relationship. Imagine a life of constant conversation and friendship. Now, I'm going to push us to action 
intentionality. But I want you to know from the very beginning, the promise of God, the gift of God, is that whatever I say to you is you're not on your own. That you are with God in this process. Basic truth of the gospel. What I'm telling you is not news. These are gospel truths, but discipleship begins with the gospel. The psalm that we read today, at the end of the psalm, the psalmist says this, let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. And he's talking about himself. He's talking about the nation of Israel. We can project ahead to Jesus because that sounds like Jesus language, right? But it's also true for us. We are called to the right hand of God because we're in Christ. Let the hand of God be on us. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So the psalmist, in his neediness, in his realization that he's not bearing the kind of fruit that he should bear, cries out to God to save him, to be with him, to restore him, to give him the strength. So this invitation to discipleship is an invitation to a partnership and a relationship with God. So it is not, as that cross that I saw in the retreat center, an invitation to discover your own divinity. <laughs> That's a kind of a dead-end street if you want to have the truth. Third gift, discipleship is the unpacking of what we have already been given. Look at verse 3. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, through this relationship, who called us to his own glory and excellence. In the context of this relationship with God, what you're going to grow in is a constant unfolding and unpacking of what is already ours. I don't see that there's a more comprehensive statement than this one. We have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness. It's already yours. And it's simply a matter of discovering it, unfolding it, living into who you are. If you can imagine this call to discipleship as the shape of your life, and this shape has been drawn out already, and it's already defined, it's simply living into what you already are. We have other phrases that we use. Living into our baptism as, uh, as, as believers in Jesus Christ. Becoming who we already are. And all of that is full of the promise of God. Verse 4. He's granted to us his precious and very great promises. So this is simply discovering more and more of what God has given us. It's another way to look at it. And then finally, this other promise that we begin this conversation with is that discipleship holds out the incredible hope of transformation. What Peter says in verses 3 and 4 and 5 is that we are invited into life. We are invited into godliness. In verse 4, Invited into, excuse me, verse 3, into glory. It's a life of beauty. Into excellence. Practical goodness. And then in verse 4, there's a phrase that literally blew the circuits of the church, early church fathers. That we are actually promised to become partakers of the divine nature. There's this old phrase uh, that you are what you eat. The word partaker means literally we are to consume, consumers, we're to have communion with the divine nature. We are to have partaking, we're to partake of the divine nature. And as we soak in the divine nature, it literally transforms us. The promise and the hope in verse 5 is a life of deliverance from corruption and rottenness. This is about transformation, folks, and that's the promise of God. He's committed to that. 
That word transformation is a word that just really has gripped my soul for most of my ministry. Um, and one of the reasons that, I mean, there's just something that happened. If you have to tell you a little story, a few years ago, we were, uh, when, I, when our youngest son was still about nine or 10 years old, he had a science project uh, in school, which science project is also known as a parent's project, and um, a science project for an insect collection. And uh, we had just moved to North Carolina from Canada. And I know this probably sounds completely unbelievable to you, but it was like October and we couldn't find any bugs. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, we were just, and we were desperate. We were just searching and searching and getting desperate for bu bugs. And we finally went out in the woods one day with Thomas to try to, you know, uh, accomplish his science project. And, uh, and I turned over a log and there was these really fantastic, handsome, manly beetles there. And they had horns, you know what I mean? And they were like so cool. I mean, I just thought, I mean, they just wanted to fight you from the beginning. You know, they just kind of reared up their head and wanted to, they wanted to go at it. And I, would, I respected those beetles immediately, you know? And I and, and had a lot of, you know, I was impressed. And then off to the left, about eight or 10 inches, were these really nasty looking fat white grubs. And, uh, and, and they were so ugly and so repulsive looking. And they're the kind of things that you wanted to step on just to put them out of their misery, right? And I sat and looked at these things for a few minutes, and then I realized that the grubs were the larvae of the beetle. And the only change between the grub and the beetle was metamorphosis. And that's the word that we're promised. We were actually promised in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we will be metamorphosized. So the great thing that you can look forward to in the life of discipleship is you've already got the promise of God that you're not going to be a grub, you're going to be a beetle, okay? Just think about that. <laughs> and that make you feel good. <laughs> transformation, transformation. So let me remind you what I've said so far, that we stand in this appeal to discipleship in the gifts we've already received. The gift of righteousness, the gift of a relationship, the gift of hope, the gift of transformation. So that's where we begin the conversation, really, in a sense. Now I'm going to turn back around and say, with that in mind, verse 5 is the key. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. So he's basically saying to us something that I think we need to hear, brothers and sisters. That the life of a disciple is not simply becoming a Christian and finding a great church and kind of enjoying coming to church from week to week, it means a daily intentionality about the pursuit of a practical lifestyle that we call in this passage virtue. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So there's an intentionality and a self-denial and a carrying your cross that is built into this appeal to discipleship. Clearly, Peter has something in mind. Make every effort to supplement your faith in virtue. And later on in this passage in verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, and verse 12, he talks about these qualities. So he has clearly something in mind, right? To your faith, add some action. The word virtue literally means practical, aggressive, courageous action. And my soul cries out, what are you talking about? You know, Peter, I need, I need, to, I need to know. What, do you, what, what have you got in mind here? But there isn't a list. 
And if you search the New Testament, you're going to be hard-pressed to find any particular list of virtues or action items. You'll find lots of them, but nothing that you can kind of go, well, here's the seven great things that you're supposed to do, or here's the 12 great things that you're going to do. And how are you going to determine this? I, I, I want to cry out to Peter, come on, guy, t tell us what you mean. Shoot it to me straight. How are we going to determine what you mean by this life of virtue? But I believe we have the clues that are necessary because he outlines the path. So that's what I want to talk to you about the rest of our time together. That's the path of choice. How do you walk the path of choice in this pursuit of discipleship? First of all, there is this word itself in verse 5, to your faith add virtue, intentionality. purpose, a willingness to face head-on at your own life and to ask the question, do I need to change in some practical manner? That's consistent with the entire New Testament, by the way. The book of Titus, I mentioned this last night when we gathered together, Titus was sent to Crete to tell the church and order the church and help the church mature and eight times he says, so that they may do good deeds. He doesn't say what those good deeds are. Kind of leaves it for us to think about a little bit more. Eight times he says, I want this church to do good in the community. That's very practical, right? At least it's a practical idea. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared beforehand that we should do. It doesn't then therefore then begin to list those good works. He just says, God has made you to do good. God has made you to have a practical impact on the world around you. And you start to think about some of the choices or the actions, at least if you can begin to riff a little bit in your own knowledge of the New Testament, what are some of the practical things that God calls his children to do? He calls us to purity, sexual purity. He calls us to radical generosity. He calls us to moderation with our bodies. And that's really true. He calls us to gratitude. He calls us to fight against evil. He calls us to pursue justice. And those are just the beginnings. And these are not actions, dear brothers and sisters, as much as we may hope, these are not actions that will develop in us by autopilot. That's really my message today. These are things that we have to intentionalize. We have to think about. We have to choose. So what Peter says then, he continues the conversation. Get in your mind virtue. Get in your mind something practical. Figure out, in a sense, before God, what he is calling you to do and be in your pursuit of Christ-likeness or godliness. Maybe it is a change in your prayer life. For me, and I'll come back a little bit later on, God has been calling me very much in the last couple of months to contentment and gratitude. And I've got to make that practical. Not just an idea, but something I do. But he says, then to your virtue, whatever you're choosing, add to your virtue knowledge. A greater and greater understanding of why this matters and what it means. Study. And again, I think by doing this, what Peter is inviting us to do is a lifelong process of study and growth in our knowledge of God. The reality of the matter is, is that there is no retirement program in the matter of discipleship. 
We are called to live to the end of the days that God has given us with a growth curve in our life. And that's a terrific hope. We're not coming to a place where we just coast and slide on in, but we grow to the very end. And we see the examples of people in Scripture who did this. I had a conversation yesterday with one of the people in the room. And they were telling me about somebody they greatly admired that he retired and worked another 27 years to improve his own mind and the world around him. What a delightful picture. To your virtue, add knowledge. Keep growing, dear brothers and sisters. To your knowledge, add self-control. As you study and as you grow in virtue, you will have to make decisions about saying no to self. You'll have to make some very clear decisions. Goes back to what we read in the Gospels, Luke chapter 9. If we do not experience the discipled life as a regular process of saying no to our own inclinations in order to do what God tells us to do, then we're probably not walking the path here. To your self-control, add steadfastness. I got to be realistic. Making one or two good decisions is not the end of the game. You got to stick with this program. You got to keep at it. Because what God wants is actually people who look different than we used to look who really have formed habits of the heart, who really have changed in the way we live, and they keep living it out. And as you continue, let's just, I mean, pick an idea. What, what do you, I, I love to talk about generosity, radical generosity, because that's one of the virtues that God has called us to. And that doesn't mean that I just simply for one tax year kind of give a lot. It just simply means that on a consistent basis and in far greater ways than just what I do with my checkbook, I open up my heart that all my resources are here so that others might be blessed. And I begin to pray, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, that God will give me more and more so that I may invest more and more. And I begin to seek the openness and the possibility that he's going to radically bless me so that I can even more radically bless others. And that becomes a way of life. And it issues into hospitality. And it begins to issue into how I treat other people with my heart and my time. See, the beauty about the virtues that we are being called to is that they open up doors of transformation and they go in so many different directions. So steadfastness, keeping at it. To your steadfastness, add godliness. Read in that word the word piety. Add piety. Add prayer. <laughs> Again, isn't it wonderful to think that we are being called to live a life that we are not alone in forging but that we are called to pray through this process. And to that prayer and to that worship and that humility, add brotherly affection. Of course, you know the phrase, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, my phrase is it takes a church to raise a disciple. <laughs> you need each other. In this effort to become who God is calling you to be, you need to open that up. You need to be friendly and be you know, willing to be known, willing to learn from one another, willing to ask for encouragement and for help. I've already said to you that one of my great goals in life is to, uh, at this point in time, is to grow in contentment and gratitude. And I actually have a partner with that, a guy you know, Art Going. Many of you know Art Going. But Art and I have agreed that we're going to hold each other accountable for our contentment level and our gratitude and check in with each other. How's it going? Are you, are you making some progress here? Do you see some change? 
because we need this brotherly affection. We need one another to accomplish the life of a disciple. And then finally, to your brotherly affection, add love. Because one of the beauties of being a follower of Jesus Christ and intentionalizing discipleship is that every single aspect of what it may mean, and there's many things it may mean, every one of them eventually is a call to love. This is love in action. This is love made practical. This is partaking of the divine nature in very practical manner. So I love this passage because it's not just about emotion and an idea, but it's about teaching us how to move ahead and practice what we say we want. But as soon as we say that, now we face the issue, will we do it? Will we do it? There's some encouragement at the end of this passage. You can read it for yourself about the benefits of this lifestyle. If these qualities are yours, you won't fall. If these qualities are yours, they will give you a hope of a greater and greater future. There's some good stuff here. What I love about this passage is that it moves us from a dream or an idea or a feeling. I don't have any problems with feelings or dreams or ideas, but it moves us into some choices that then over the long haul will make enormous difference in our lives, in this church, and in this community. I want to end with a simple illustration. I, uh, I love to sail. I'm not a great sailor, but I do love to sail. Uh, and I have a lot of fun with just a little sunfish, you know, a one-person sailboat. Um, but one of the things I love about sailing is the image that it gives me of the Christian life, of the discipled life. I promise you that no matter how hard I pull on the sail or mess around with a rudder, if there is no wind, I will not go anywhere, right? I'll just sit in the water. So the real power of sailing is from what? Something I do not control and I do not even see. It's called wind. At the same time, if the wind is blowing and I do not hold a sail and I do nothing with the rudder, I will also go nowhere, right? I will sit there in the water. So I would encourage you to realize that what I think we are seeing here is that the disciple life is like sailing. There is a wind of God. There is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is the promises that you are righteous. There is the promise of a relationship. There is the promise of hope. There's the promise of transformation. These things are already given. That's the wind. There's the Holy Spirit. There's this call to godliness and to prayer. Because in this effort to follow Jesus, we have to pray. But where I think the real push for me and the real question for me that I want to lay on the table in myself and in you is that other part. Will I actually hold the sail and hold the rudder? Will I make choices in the concrete world to pursue the life of of virtue and Christ-likeness? Will I grow? Will I seek to push the edge of my life in the power of the Holy Spirit? I'm very, very encouraged and excited about this church. I believe God has called you to do good, to make a difference in this world. But that's going to come from the collective impact of a bunch of individuals who are actually seriously in pursuit of the discipled life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.